From the hallowed hallways of Shed High School, from WSHDLP Eastport, this is Round the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane from Eastport, Maine. Stay tuned for historical 78 RPM recordings from around the world. Around the World is being brought to you this hour by the National Association of Uncles. Those official and unofficial, often wacky, surrogate parents who provide extra familial inspiration to young people. Uncles and aunts can provide kids with a different worldview from that of their parents and rescue those nieces and nephews from going into safe careers such as accounting, systems analysis, or sales engineering by leading them astray to become musicians, composers, and comedians. Case in point, do you think the Marx Brothers came up with their antics all by themselves? They had a famous uncle who they idolized, none other than Mr. Sheehan of the famous vaudeville comedy duo Gallagher and Sheehan. Their uncle Al Sheehan was the guilty party who developed the Marx Brothers' various stage personae. Let's start out with Mr. Gallagher and Mr. Sheehan performing their act, backed up by Nat Shilkred and his orchestra in 1922. Oh, Miss Sagan, yes, hello. Miss Sagan. 
one light that shines so bright. It's the brightest light in sight. And you have liberty, Mr. Gallagher. Coney Island, Mr. Sheehan. That was the vaudeville comedy double act, Mr. Gallagher and Mr. Sheehan, with the assistance of Nat Shilkret and his orchestra in 1922. Mr. Sheehan was the uncle of the Marx Brothers, who venerated him and wanted to follow in his footsteps. Our sponsor this hour is the National Association of Uncles. Your aunts and uncles are different than mom and dad, and provide you nieces and nephews with a look at life through the eyes of someone who branched off the same family tree, but may have a very dissimilar lifestyle than your parents. Siblings with the exact same parents can grow up to have widely varying personalities and interests, so it's incumbent on a good uncle to share a contrasting worldview with his nieces and nephews compared to the one they're growing up with at home. Let's take a look at another great and influential uncle, that robust and swinging jazz trombonist, J.C. Higginbotham. His niece, Irene, hitched her wagon to his star and became a successful songwriter in the 1940s. Here's old J.C. in 1930 with his six hicks playing Give Me Your Telephone Number, and then we'll hear one of Irene Higginbotham's songs.
meat is good, good, good. I'm telling you, bud, don't be an old dud. If you're a hip cat, you like your meat fat. You ought to know that it's good, good, good. is driving me mad got a feeling that i've never had for every morning i wake up and say what are we having for dinner today i get an answer and what does she say fat bean chop me That was Savannah Churchill with Jimmy Little and his All-Star 7 in Irene Higginbotham's Fat Meat is Good Meat. Irene wrote lots of excellent songs in the 1940s with very interesting lyrics. Her uncle was jazz trombone giant J.C. Higginbotham. And the National Association of Uncles would like to remind you that it's not necessary to be genetically related to someone to be a good uncle. Stride piano pioneer James P. Johnson acted as a spiritual uncle to such rising musicians as Count Basie and Duke Ellington. We hear next James P. Johnson's star pupil, Fats Waller, playing one of his teacher's compositions. But first, let's have a listen to James P. Johnson himself playing his own 1930, You've Got to Be Modernistic. Thank you. 
That was a 1941 Fats Waller playing Carolina Shout, written by his teacher, James P. Johnson. And this was preceded by James P. Johnson himself in 1930 with his You've Got to Be Modernistic. James P. Johnson provided uncle role modeling and encouragement to many rising jazz luminaries. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. Around the World is being underwritten this hour by the National Association of Uncles the guys that show you some aspects of the world that you won't find at home. It's true some uncles can be a bad influence and show the kids how to drive donuts with the ATV in the middle of the living room, but today we are focused on uncles, actually related or otherwise, who have been instrumental in the success of their nieces and nephews. Let's hear from two more of James P. Johnson's spiritual nephews, Count Basie and Duke Ellington. Here is Ham and Eggs from 1939 with Count Basie. Thank you. 
Ellington and his 1930 orchestra, Shout 'em, Aunt Tilly. Before that, Ham and Eggs, served up by Count Basie and his orchestra in 1939. Both those band leaders had the benefit of stride piano pioneer James P. Johnson as a successful role model and surrogate uncle. Now it's time to hear from the Women's Auxiliary of the National Association of Uncles, 
We hear next, straight from 1938, Jack Teagarden and the Modern Airs with Paul Whiteman and his swing wing, Aunt Hager's Blues. His flock was given the way of living right. He said, No winging, no ragtime singing tonight. No ragtime singing the blues tonight. Up jumped that Hager and shot it out with all her might. Just hear Aunt Hager's children harmonizing to that old mournful tune. It's like a choir from on high broke loose. If the devil brought it, the good Lord sent it right down to Oh, let the congregation join while I play those loving and haggard blues. Ain't no use of preaching, ain't no use of teaching when you hear those Of syncopation Just tells my feet to dance And I can't refuse Oh, when I hear The melody they call the blues Those ever-loving blues Ain't no use to preach Ain't no use to teach
What we're hearing is a musical portrait of Aunt Patsy, painted by Prince's Band in 1916. Before that, Aunt Hager's Blues, explicated by Jack Teagarden and the 1938 Modern Airs, with the assistance of Paul Whiteman and his Swing Wing. Two tributes to the Women's Auxiliary of the National Association of Uncles, this hour's sponsor. Now we mentioned that a good uncle doesn't have to be a blood relation, and a good example is Louis Armstrong, who was abandoned by his own dad when he was a young child and was taken in by a Lithuanian Jewish family of junk dealers for a few years. In his autobiography, he describes being sung to sleep with Yiddish lullabies and witnessing the anti-Semitic mistreatment his adopted family experienced and the dignified determination exhibited by them. In fact, Mr. Karnofsky helped Louis Armstrong buy his first cornet. Let's listen to Louis Armstrong sing an early song about racial discrimination. Black and Blue, from the bed, spring corn has led, feel like old Ned, wish I was dead, all my life through, I've been so black and blue, mm, even the mouse ran from my house, they laugh at you, and scorn you too, what did I do so black and blue I'm white inside but that don't help my case can't hide what is it my How will it end? Ain't got a friend. My only sin is in my skin. 
What did I do to be so black and blue? And it's all one fellow's fault And now he's got it started It's too late to call a halt We've so much to put up with That we call him awful names For everything that happens He's the man the public blames We blame him for the sandbags That keep tripping up our feet For imitation coppers In tin hats on every beat Our air raid warden's very blunt And simply too, too sweet So it's just too bad For nasty Uncle Adolf He's in for it now, all right. A friend said, I've an air raid shelter, sandbags by the score. I've put some fairy lights around it. Can you guess what for? They'll see the lights and vomit while we're playing darts next door. So it's just too bad for nasty Uncle Adolf. He's in for it now, all right. amazing how we hate that fellow's name for everything that worries us he has to take the blame we're always out of petrol and we keep our headlights dim so if the girl gets out and walks we go on blaming him we blame him for the lies that Goebbels tells of you and me announcements and news bulletins galore from BBC and records of some chamber music opus 93 so it's just too Uncle Adolf, he's in for it now, all right. Since Goering started slimming, he looks different on parade. The tucks from all his uniforms rigged out the boys' brigade. And now there isn't room for all his medals, I'm afraid. So it's just too bad for nasty Uncle Adolf. He's in for it now, all right. Well, we'd be the first to admit that not all uncles are shining examples of how we want our kids to grow up. That was Nasty Uncle Adolf, a song about Great Britain's struggles with the Nazis in 1939, before the Americans entered the war, and performed by Jack Cooper with Ambrose and his orchestra. This was preceded by Louis Armstrong and his orchestra from 1929, Black and Blue, a song about racial discrimination Louis Armstrong had a surrogate uncle, Mr. Karnofsky, a Lithuanian Jew, who provided a positive role model when Louis was in his preteen years. 
You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. The National Association of Uncles would like us to point out that an uncle can also be an important symbol of the avuncular role of a government or a nation. An obvious specimen is Uncle Sam. Here's Red River Day from 1944. I'd like to give my dog to Uncle Sam. You see, sir, I'm a blind boy, yes I am. I like to do my part, to show what's in my heart, and help my country win this war that we are in. My rover, he can hear a mile away, and he can see at night as well as day. I'll get along somehow If my country needs him now I'd like to give my dog to Uncle Sam I'd like to give my dog to Uncle Sam They say they can enlist just like a man We've walked since early morn From way out on the farm When we heard on the air They need dogs over there I've never seen old glory wave above But still I know she's there For me to love I've told my dog goodbye I don't mean it if I cry I'd like to give my dog to Uncle I'd like to give my dog to Uncle Sam. You see, sir, I'm a blind boy. Yes, I am. And I'd like to do my part to show what's in my heart and help my country win this war that we're in. I've never seen old glory wave above. But still I know she's there for me to love I've told my dog goodbye I don't mean it if I cry I'd like to give my dog to Uncle Sam
my uncle. I'm as proud as I can be. And my sisters and my brothers and my cousins by the dozens share that pride with me. For my uncle envies no one, and there's no one he provokes. And my sisters and my brothers and my cousins by the dozens We're his kind of foes That spry old chap never picks a scrap But he's won all his hat And furthermore I feel sorry for Any big bully that gets him mad He's my uncle, he's my uncle And it's righty proud I am And my sisters and my brothers and my cousins by the dozens We're proud of Uncle Sam That was Rose Blaine with Abe Lyman and his 1940 Californians, He's My Uncle. And this was preceded with another song about Uncle Sam, sung by Red River Dave. I'd like to give my dog to Uncle Sam. About a blind boy who was willing to give up his dog if needed. And speaking of blind musicians, did you know that master jazz pianist Sir George Shearing was blind? Here he is in 1948. Bops, your uncle. Thank you. 
one of your partner and your corners law. And swing that girl across the hall. You haven't swung her since way last fall. Then form a ring with a pretty little thing and circle left. Go round that ring and you break this ring with a corner swing. And I'll leave her on your right if it takes all night and circle left in broad daylight. Now break this ring with a corner swing and around we go. We circle left and I don't be slow. Circle left, now here we go. Turn your partner with the left hand around, your corner's all with the right hand around. Partner's left and left hand around, and keep on doing it, don't be slow, cause now you're doing a do-si-do. Now you're right and now you're wrong, meet your honey. Now promenade them round we go, you promenade and don't be slow. You promenade them, don't be late, and back to place until you're straight. Now couples, one, two, and three. We circle six and I don't get mixed, you circle left and here we go. Now do see do partner left and a left hand around, your corner's all with a right hand around. Partner's left and a left hand around, and back to your corner, right hand around, and back to place. Now don't be late, you circle round this little circle, back to place, and don't be slow. Now then the couples, a two, three, and four. We circle six and it don't get mixed, you circle left like picking up sticks. Now do see do is partner's left and a left hand around, your corner's all with a right hand around. Now you're right and now you're wrong. Honey, and come on home, it's back to place. Now don't be late, it's back to place till you get straight. Now couples, the first four, lead to the right. Form two rings and circle four in the middle of the floor. Circle left and here we go. Do see do is partner left and your corner's right. Your partner's left in a back place. Now don't be slow, swing that little so and so. A side four, you lead to the right. Form two rings and circle four in the middle of the floor. Now do see do is partner left in your corner's right. And now you're right and now you're wrong. And I meet your honey and I come on home. Home you go and everybody swing and I don't be late. Now couples, one, two, and three. Circle six and I don't get mixed. Round and round like picking up sticks. Now do see do is partner left in your corner's right. And I keep on going in broad daylight. Now you're right and now you're wrong. And I meet your honey and promenade right back to place. Couples, a two, three, and four. Circle six, around we go. A circle left, and a don't be slow. Now, element left with your left hand, to right to your honey. Go right and left around that ring. Now, meet your honey with a do see do As partner left, and your corner's right. And now you're right, and now you're wrong. And I meet your honey and promenade around the hall. A back place, and a don't you fall. It's all around your left hand lady. Oh, boy, ain't she a baby? Seesaw, this pretty little tar. was a square dance called Uncle George. The caller was Herb Gregerson, assisted by Slim and his country cousins. Before that, Bops, Your Uncle, ideated by Sir George Shearing in 1948. Now let's wind up this uncle-a-thon with the Hoosier hotshots seeking 1935 advice from their Uncle Ezra about women. They go wild, simply wild over me. Uncle Ezra? Yeah. I'd like to ask you a question. Well, all right, Hedger. How do you get along with the ladies? Hedger, they go simply wild over me. <laughs> <laughs> Talk 
talk about myself, but here's one time I must. Your confidence I'll trust. I've got to speak or bust. It's funny how I get the girls. I never try at all. I seem to hypnotize them. I'm bound to make them fall. They go wild, simply wild over me. They go mad, just as mad as they can be. No matter where I'm at, all the ladies, thin or fat, the tall ones, the small ones, I grab them off like that. Every night, how they fight over me. I don't know what it is they see in me. They look at me and sigh. In my arms, they want to die. They go wild, simply wild over me. Tell us more about it, Uncle You can do your knitting. Why, I get so many pretty girls, I give a few away. They bother me each day. They're leading me astray. There's lots of fellas go with girls and never get their drift. How do you get your ladies, Uncle Hezzy, it's just a gift. They go wild, simply wild over me. They go mad, just as mad as they can be. No matter where I'm at, all the ladies, thin or fat, the tall ones, the small ones, I grab them off like that. Every night, how they fight over me. I don't know what it is they see in me. Why, when I want to be alone, I have to choke the telephone. They go wild, simply wild over me. They go wild, simply wild over me. I don't know what it is, but I've got it.
Uncle Bud. That was the 20th century Gabriel Erskine Hawkins and his orchestra in 1941. And before that, Uncle Ezra explained his success with women to his nephews in the Hoosier hotshots. They go wild, simply wild, over me. And this concludes the musical portion of Round the World today. We would like to thank our esteemed sponsor, the National Association of Uncles, who reminded us the importance of the influence of aunts and uncles. Please use your avuncular powers wisely. You could be creating another set of Marx Brothers or have your nieces and nephews take up songwriting as a career. And remember, you don't have to be a blood relation to have a positive aunt or uncle effect. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. This is Round the World with Cracklin' Jane. And now, speaking of aunts, we have a 1951 episode of The Whistler entitled A Trip to Aunt Sarah's. So let's listen. And now, stay tuned for the program that has rated tops in popularity for a longer period of time than any other West Coast program in radio history. The Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. Signal, the famous go-farther gasoline, invites you to sit back and enjoy another strange story by The Whistler. I am The Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now for the Signal Oil Company, The Whistler's Strange Story, A Trip to Aunt Sarah's. Carl Halliday was a desperate man. All the while he was driving from Summit to the northwest town of Kinsley, he was haunted by the nagging realization that if old Jace Melton, an associate of Carl's late uncle, refused to help him, the Halliday lumber mills would be no more. And seated beside him, a constant reminder of the impending defeat, was his partner Max Fenner, whom Carl had inherited, along with half-interest in the mills from his uncle. Between the two of them, they'd managed to bring the lumber mills to the brink of oblivion, and only Jace Melton's assistance could save it now. Max remained in the car outside, while Carl Halliday pleaded his case with the elderly gentleman, whom Carl believed could save the mills with a single word. You're being unreasonable, completely unreasonable. I think the same of you. You suggest that I sell a valuable piece of land in Mexico to save a lumber mill, which your operations have brought to the brink of ruin. The land in Mexico is half mine, Jace, remember that. My inheritance, yes. You're in a poor position to judge its true worth. But you can. And do. For your welfare and my own. It'll be worth twice what we're being offered in one year, or my name isn't Jason Melton. A year? A year will be too late. To save your lumber mill? Yes, I suppose. But I've tried to help you before. Offered advice that could have saved the mill. But you'd never listen to me. You've always thought you had all the answers. Your free advice isn't what I need. It's too late for advice now anyway. If you hadn't been so cocky, you wouldn't be in this shape now. You want me to lose the mill, don't you? 
Why should I want you to lose it? To prove a point that you're always right. I've never said that. I did say you and that partner of yours, Max Fenner, didn't stand a chance of making the mill pay. So now, now, it's all about to be borne out. Every prediction you've ever made. I don't give it that much thought. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. When I go, you'll sit here by this fire and chuckle. You want people to fail so you can laugh. Get out of here. Oh, no, no, not yet. Not till this is settled. What are you doing? Just turning on the radio, that's all. The radio? I don't understand. You will, Jace, you will. We'll play it loud, huh? Real loud. No, no. No! Stay away from me! Carl! Killed him. You killed him. Carl, you don't didn't have to do oh, that. Shut up, Max. Shut up and think. He almost got me. Tore the devil out of my arm with a letter opener before I put him away. I'm sorry you're hurt, Carl, but murder, how do you expect it? I said it? shut up. With Jace out of the picture, I can raise money on the land in Mexico and save the mill. But if someone saw us... Nobody saw us. No one even knows we drove down here tonight. But if they did, if they ever found they out... They don't and they won't. That's all that's important now, Max. That and the simple fact that the money I raise from that land will keep us in business. Yes. Yes, it will do that. Don't drive too fast, Carl. We must get back to Summit without being seen. Don't stop for anything. Oh, you worry too much, Max. You're not nearly as calm as you would have Max Fenner believe, are you, Carl? No. Because you know your little partner well. He'll take whatever strength he can from you. So you must remain very strong, at least seemingly. There's much on your mind, much ahead of you to face. You dismiss the deep, jagged cut on your arm from Jace Melton's letter over there. No one need know about that. You're far more concerned with the questioning you'll get in the matter of Jace's death. So many people can testify to the many differences you've had between you. That's why you're not at all surprised the next morning when Sheriff Avery pays a visit to your office and is ushered in by your secretary. Sheriff Avery? Well, of course, Jenny, of course you're in. Sheriff? Good morning, Carl. Good morning to you, Sheriff. I'm surprised to see you way out here. Uh-huh. Carl, I uh, suppose you've heard about the murder over in Kinsley. Murder in Kinsley? When? Who? Uh... Jace Melton. Happened last night. He was alone in the house. You mean someone broke in? It was a robbery? Well, I don't know what theories they're advancing over in Kinsley. Me, I've got my own ideas. Jace was a friend of yours, wasn't he? He was a friend of my uncle's. He and I were associated only through business, Sheriff, and very little of that. We own some property together, otherwise I'd never trouble to see him. Don't suppose you've seen him uh, since the two of you quarreled a week ago? What? Well, no. Jenny, have I been to Kinsley since last week? No, not since the week ago Thursday. Just for the record, Carl, uh, where were you last night? I was here in my office working. And just for the record, Sheriff, I don't like your insinuations. No, I'm not insinuating anything. I'm merely asking questions. It's my job. But surely you can't suspect Mr. Halliday of a crime Never like mind, murder. Jenny. Never mind. Do you realize, Carl, that under the circumstances, the quarreling and all, that if you had gone down there last night... I, I... realize that, Sheriff, but I was here working. Can you prove that, Carl, if you have to? Well, no. But could you prove I wasn't? Or show anything to indicate that I could have been anywhere near Melton's place at the time of his death? No, I guess not. Oh, by the way, Carl, you, you haven't asked. 
But Jace Melton was killed with a fireplace poker. And it looks like he defended himself with a letter opener. The murderer's probably carrying a nasty cut on him somewhere. Well, thanks for talking to me. Talk to you anytime, Sheriff. Mm -hmm. I'll be running along. Oh, never mind, miss. I can find my way. As you wish. Well, you were more annoyed than I was, Jenny. You showed real faith in me. And thanks for remembering the exact day I went down there. I'm paid to remember, Mr. Halliday. I suppose. But uh, I look at it differently, Jenny. And I appreciate it. Huh. I'm glad. Particularly that you look at it differently. She says it oddly, doesn't she, Carl? And you reflect that you've often thought she was an odd girl. But you give Jenny little more thought in the days that follow. Because the murder in Kinsley gets little space in the newspapers in Summit. Your name isn't even mentioned. And you feel for certain that you and Max Fenner are in the clear. You are able to persuade the bank to advance you some money. That you'll have no trouble clearing the title to the land once Jace Melton's will is probated. Even the deep cut on your arm seems to be less painful. And then with all going quite nicely, you receive a surprise in a conversation with Jenny one afternoon in your office. Oh, yes, Mr. Halliday. I, I mentioned to you before that my sister teaches school. Well, I don't recall, but Jenny, I still don't see why... Why I brought it up? Well, you see, my sister visited me the other evening, and I, well, I helped her correct some school papers. She teaches the fifth grade, you know. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, in helping her, I ran across a very interesting composition by a boy named Willie Sykes. It was called A Trip to Aunt Sarah. Is that so? It seems that last week Willie Sykes took the train up to the big city all by himself. He was so excited by it all that he sat up half the night on the observation platform. Uh, Jenny, I don't want to seem rude, but with the work we have to do, I'm hardly interested in the composition of a ten-year-old... Oh, but you haven't heard what he wrote. You see, the train on the way to the city, it stopped at Kinsley. So? So the train blocked the Main Street crossing, and from the observation platform, Willie Sykes saw a man get out of his car, stopped at the crossing, and wipe off his windshield. He recognized the man as his father's boss. His father's boss? Willie's father works here at the lumber mill. Oh, uh, Willie what? saw you get out of that car, and he says there was another man inside the car. He took that trip the night Jason Melton was killed. Where's this composition, Jenny? Where is it? I want to see it. Has anyone else seen what the boy wrote? No. No, Mr. Halliday. Uh, Carl. I'm the only one who's seen it, and, uh, I put it away in a very safe place. You can't see it. You can't see the wear that's taking place inside your car's engine. But you can see smoke in the exhaust, which means engine wear is causing your car to consume more and more oil until eventually it becomes an oil eater. You can't feel it. You can't feel the wear that's taking place inside your engine, but you can feel your car losing pep and power, and your wallet can feel the drain of repair bills caused by engine wear. But once you can see and feel this damage, the damage has already been done. The time to prevent engine wear in your car is before it happens. And the way to prevent it is with Signal Premium, the amazing new motor oil that reduces engine wear due to lubrication 
So if your car isn't already an oil eater, and you'd like to continue to enjoy low oil consumption twice as long, the time to start getting your oil changed at a signal service station is now. And if you want your car to keep its like-new pep and power twice as long, the kind of oil to change to is Signal Premium, the new heavy-duty type signal oil that reduces engine wear due to lubrication 50%. It's a terrible moment, isn't it, Carl? With Jenny, your secretary, describing a composition she corrected for her sister who teaches school. A composition by a 10-year-old boy describing a trip to Aunt Sarah's. But a composition also proving that you and Max Fenner were in Kinsley on the night Jace Melton was murdered. It's all the sheriff would need to have a strong case against you. Especially since you lied to him about being there. And you listen in shocked terror as Jenny continues. And, well, that's that's all, Mr. Halliday. Uh, Carl, naturally, I kept my sister from seeing the composition. She marked it an A on my recommendation. But, but what happened to it? I, uh, kept it. Oh, I see. Well, go on, Jenny. Tell me, what do you want for that composition? How much? Nothing. No, no. Uh, really? Well, I... I was hoping it would bring us a little closer together. You see, I've... I've always admired you, Mr. Halliday. Well, I've always admired you, Jenny. You know, uh, you are quite pretty. Quite pretty. Then... Then we shouldn't have any trouble. None at all. No. None, Jenny. None whatsoever. Come here. And so in the days that follow, you turn on the charm, don't you, Carl? Evidence a great deal of interest in Jenny. Anything to keep her quiet for the time being until you can think of some way to silence her forever. In the meantime, you make plans for Willie's father, don't you? Yes. And one morning, he's ushered into your office. You sent for me, Mr. Halliday? Yes, yes, Sykes, sit down. Good morning, Mr. Good morning, good morning. Sykes, you're familiar with the mill up at Pineview? Oh, sure. Worked there a couple of years before I come here. How'd you like to go back? Go back to Pineview? <laughs> well, it's nice up there. As foreman. Foreman? Me? Surprised, Sack? Well, uh, uh, I sure am, Mr. Fenner. Uh, I don't, don't know what to say. Of course, it'll mean moving your family out of Summit, leaving a lot of friends here. Oh, don't worry about that none, Mr. Halliday. Uh, I won't mind at all. Good, good. You'll start drawing a foreman's pay the minute you reach Pineview. Well, thanks a lot, Mr. Halliday, Mr. Fenner. You're a good man, Sykes. Deserve the chance. Uh, I'll go home. Tell Ellie right now. Thanks again. Good luck. Well... That's that. I'll sure feel a lot better when that Sykes kid gets out of town. Satisfied with everything now, are you, Max? Well, sure, aren't you? No. No, I still have Jenny, remember? Yes, I do. Well, she's beginning to annoy me. 
I warn you, Max, I may do something about her, too. And I may do it soon. It's while you're returning from an inspection tour of the mills a week later that you decide to stop at Halliday Lodge, high in the timber country above Summit. Once used as a weekend retreat by your late uncle, the place has been closed now for a number of years. You dread the thought of returning to town and Jenny so soon, don't you, Carl? Decide you need more time alone to think things out. You park your car on the road above the lodge. And as you start down the long flight of stone stairs, your foot suddenly gives way. The guardrail was the only thing that saved you from falling, Carl. Yes, saved you from hurtling down the stairway. You kneel down, examine the step. The stone slab is loose, isn't it, Carl? Made you lose your balance. Oh, all those stairs, I... I would have been killed. I... I... I would have been killed. The idea hits you suddenly, doesn't it, Carl? You get to work. Scoop more dirt out from under the stone slab. Prop it in place with a few twigs. Then you loosen the guardrail. And the stage is set for murder. You hurry back into town. And that evening, proceed to Jenny's apartment. Oh, oh, Carl. Hello, Jenny. I wasn't sure if you'd be back from the trip in time for our date. I hurried back especially for it, Jenny. <laughs> well, I, I'm all ready. I, I'll just get my hat and coat. The moment she steps out of the room, you decide to try an old trick. You pull the window shade down to within an inch of the bottom of the window. Then you slip the catch on the lock of the apartment door. You hope it will work with Jenny and lead you to the evidence she holds against you. Well, Mr. Golden called from Seattle about that shipment last week, and, oh, there were several letters... Please, from... Jenny, we'll we... save all... Come here. Oh, God. We're out to enjoy ourselves. All right. Uh, shall we go? What are you thinking about, Jenny? You haven't said a word in the last ten minutes. What? Oh, I'm sorry, Carl. I, I, I was just thinking. <laughs> did you have fun tonight? Oh, you know I did. Oh, Carl. Carl, I've met so many wonderful, exciting people since... Well, since and there are a lot more I want you to meet, Jenny. New and interesting places to visit, too. Well, here we are. Oh, home already? Mm-hmm. You're sorry the evening's over. Oh, of course I am. But I'm a working girl, and it's after one in the morning, so got to get my sleep, you know. <laughs> oh, don't bother getting out, Carl. Good night, Jenny. Good night, Carl. See you in the morning. Sweet dreams. You drive away. Park your car out of sight around the corner and hurry back to the window of Jenny's ground floor apartment. Crouched low, you can see her standing in the middle of the living room, a puzzled expression on her face. Your trick is working, isn't it? She's noticed the door was unlocked. Now she'll suspect that someone was in her apartment while she was gone. And she'll go right for Willie Sykes' composition to see if it's safe. She turns toward the window where you've drawn the shade. 
and then hurries to the chest of drawers at the far end of the room. She opens the middle drawer, sifts through a number of items, and finally, with a sigh of relief, she withdraws the papers. Willie's composition, Carl. Thanks, sweetheart. All I wanted to know was where you kept that composition. Morning, Jenny. Morning, Carl. <laughs> now, don't bawl me out. I know I'm late. Oh, it's a fine time to show up at the office, huh? I'll let you know on something. I was late myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, Jenny, I meant to tell you something last night. Oh? Yes, call up the mill foreman at Shelton Pineview in Harrison, will you? Mm -hmm. Tell him there's going to be a meeting tonight at 8 o'clock at Halliday Lodge. That's hmm, a good idea. And, uh, Jenny, I think you'd better run, up, run on up ahead of the rest of us. The place has been closed for some time, you know, and probably needs some straightening out. And you'd know about that, Ellie. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> yeah. You sure you don't mind? Oh, of course not, Carl. I don't mind at all. It's late that afternoon when Jenny leaves the office. You stand by the window and wait. Presently, you see her drive back from her apartment, past the office, and head into the town. She's on her way to the lodge, isn't she, Carl? You're certain of that. Certain, too, that within two hours, by seven o'clock, she'll be dead, lying in a crumbled heap at the foot of the stairs outside Halliday Lodge. You stroll out of the office, down into the town, waste almost two hours chatting with some old friends. Then, a few minutes before seven, you're at Jenny's apartment house, ringing the manager's bell. Well, good evening, Mr. Halliday. Good evening, Mr. Gross. Say, I wonder if you'd do me a favor. Of course. I received a phone call from Jenny a little while ago. She's on her way to Halliday Lodge, and she left some important business papers in her apartment. Oh, want the pass key? Uh, sure. Here you are. Thanks. I'll bring them right back. No hurry. Just drop the keys here in front of my door on your way out. Fine, fine. Once inside Jenny's apartment, you rush to the chest of drawers, open the middle one where you saw Jenny put Willie Sykes' composition. You search through it frantically. <laughs> it, it's not here. A wave of panic sweeps over you, Carl, as the sudden thought strikes you. Jenny could have taken the composition with her. Yes, and when her body is found, the Willie Sykes' composition will be found too. Still, there's a slim chance she's hidden it somewhere else in the apartment, isn't there, Carl? And you begin the search. no use, is it, Carl? You've wasted over half an hour searching the apartment. The papers aren't here. You hurry out of the apartment, and as you reach the sidewalk, a car pulls up to the curb. Carl! What? Jenny! I thought you'd be on your way to the lodge. Well, Jenny, what are you doing here? I might ask you the same thing. Well, I... That's why you sent me off to the lodge so early. You wanted to search my apartment. Oh, no, no, Jenny, you've... You, uh, Get in the car, I... I want to talk to you. Oh, now, look, Jenny, if you'll just let me explain, you've got this all wrong. Yes, yes I know. I've had it all wrong right from the beginning. What? What do you mean? About us, Carl. No good. Won't work. I guess I was a fool to think I could force you into falling in love with me. Jenny, what, what are you trying to... I'm through, Carl. Washed up. Finished with the whole business. I uh, 
just got back from shopping. I also bought myself a train ticket. I'm leaving Summit for good. What? That's right. I won't bother you anymore, Carl. I'll see that you get Willie Sykes' composition. And burn it. Do whatever you want with it. Jenny, I don't know quite what to say. You don't have to say anything. It's all over. It's forgotten. Well, how does it feel, Carl, to be off the hook? It feels fine, Jenny. Just fine. You can't see it. No, unfortunately, you can't see inside your motor. Can't see how some motor oils break down and form harmful gum, varnish, and carbon, clogging up oil rings and causing hydraulic valve lifters to stick. But because new Signal Premium Motor Oil controls and reduces these harmful engine deposits, you can be sure your oil rings are being kept clean and free, sure that your hydraulic valve lifters won't stick. You can't feel it. You can't feel it when acid corrosion and rust attack expensive parts inside an engine. But because new Signal Premium Motor Oil stops acid corrosion and rust, you can feel sure this unseen villain isn't damaging your motor. And you can feel doubly fortunate that at signal service stations, the extra protection of this superior quality heavy-duty type oil is yours at no increase in price. So see your signal dealer for an oil change now. You'll both see and feel a wonderful difference in the way your car's performance stays up and maintenance costs stay down with Signal Premium, the amazing new motor oil that reduces engine wear due to lubrication 50%. It was a shock, wasn't it, Carl? Meeting Jenny in front of her apartment, when all the while you thought she was dead, lying in a crumbled heap at the foot of the stairs outside Halliday Lodge, killed by the trap you had set. Yes, and the paper you thought she carried with her, Willie Sykes' composition. It would have been found on the body, turned over to the sheriff. That's all he would have needed, Carl. But everything's all right now, isn't it? Jenny didn't go to the lodge after all. Now as you sit with her in the parked car in front of her apartment building, she's informed you of her decision to leave Summit for good, step out of your life forever. And you're certain you're completely in the clear. Well, Carl, I, I guess we can say goodbye now. Uh, Jenny, the composition you said... Oh, to... yes, yes. You'll get it, Carl. I gave it to Max. Max? Yes, after I bought my train ticket, I went back to the office looking for you. I wanted to give you the composition then, but you weren't there, so I gave it to Max. I, I see. He stuffed it into his pocket and headed up to the lodge. What? What? Max is on his way to the lodge? Yes. I told him about the meeting. He rushed right up there to find you. That, that was about two hours ago. Oh, no. No, no. They'll find him. They'll find him in the composition. Carl, where are you going? I, I can still get away. They couldn't have found Max yet. All right, hold it, Mr. Halliday. What? what? Sure. I'd like a word with you, Halliday. Huh. Down at headquarters. Why? Why, what's wrong? I just drove back from Halliday Lodge. One of your mill foremen named Sykes found Max Fenner at the foot of the stairway, dead. He called me right away. Uh, Sykes? Yeah. Seems he got to the lodge early. Wanted to make a good impression. New job and all. Anyway, he found Max Fenner's body, and uh, I found this on Max. 
Oh, yes. Uh, the composition by little Willie Sykes called A Trip to Aunt Sarah's. <laughs> no. Looks like you were in Kinsley the night Jace Melton was murdered, Carl. Now, if we can just find a cut on you made by Jace's letter opener, you're as good as in the gas chamber right now. Featured in tonight's story were Bill Foreman, Wally Mayer, Gigi Pearson, Bill Boucher, Charles Calvert, and Charles Seal. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Steve Hampton, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The Whistler is entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. We've just heard a 1951 episode of The Whistler, entitled A Trip to Aunt Sarah's. And we remind you that WSHDLP Eastport is a non-commercial station and does not endorse any products. Now stay tuned for The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, a 1950 episode named The Monkey's Uncle. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time I tangled with a mad Scotchman, a phony English lord and a beautiful blonde corpse in a freight house, all because of a butler who walked on his knuckles. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Monkey's Uncle. Hello. Mr. Philip Marlowe, please. It's very important. This is Marlowe. Cornelius' life is in danger, man, and time means everything. Now, sir, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who are you? Who's Cornelius? Where are you calling from and about what? Let's have it a slow step at a time, huh? Hey, my name's Wesley McDuff, Mr. Marlowe. All right, lead on, McDuff. I'm calling from a telephone booth opposite the Beekman Plaza Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard where... Hmm? Ashley Duke. Ashley who? Going for the Beekman Plaza. Lord Ashley Duke himself across the street. Now, wait a minute. I've got to get to him. Mr. Marlowe, hurry. Meet me in the hotel lobby. Yes, but... We've got to stop them. They're going to kill Cornelius. My first reaction was to forget the whole thing. But curiosity is strong stuff with me. Any triumvirate labeled Wesley McDuff, Lord Ashley Duke, and Cornelius had to add up the screwball no matter where you started. But the word kill was still big in my vocabulary, so... I buttoned the office up quickly, got down in my car, and drove over to the Beekman Plaza Hotel, where a ten-minute stand in the lobby produced nothing closer to worried Scotchman than the plaid covering in a sagging Morris chair. 
And at the reception desk, there was no Wesley McDuff registered or ever heard of. I'm sorry, sir. So at that, I was ready to call it quits. I turned for the door, but before I got there, I was stopped. The uniform said bellhop, and the sprinkle of freckles plus Bon Cowlick said all-American boy. But the shifty eyes and the narrow mouth that slid over to the side of his face when he talked said something else. Like racetrack tough. Say, uh, pardon me, sir, but uh, I happened to overhear you ask after a Scotchman. Uh, Wesley McDuff, was it? Yeah, you know where he is? Well, uh, yes, and... Uh... Yes, and uh, how much? Ten? Five. Okay, sport, five. Mm. But let's get out of the traffic, huh? Over here, under this map, like I was pointing out something to you. That's a fresh idea, yeah. Thanks. Uh, the viva? Oh, here. Now, uh, where's McDuff? On his way to Burbank, dead drunk. You're crazy. I talked to him less than half an hour ago. He was stone sober and a long way from the party mood. Mm, could be. But 15 minutes ago, I helped Lord Ashley Duke pile him into a cab. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Ashley Duke, how does he fit? Uh, he found this McDuff in the alley outside. Oh. I was just coming back from dinner when I saw him pick the guy up. He couldn't say a word. Huh? But a Blue Shield medical card we found in his wallet read Wesley McDuff, 13 Vineland Avenue, Burbank. Boy, he was out colder than my old man. Yeah, yeah. I now listen, Junior, here's another five. Fill me in fast. Who's Lord Ashley Duke? A nightclub character. Entertainer. Lives here with his wife, uh, Lady Ashley Duke, when they're in L.A. Well, this, um, is he legitimate, this Lord business? Nah, nah, but he plays it to the hilt. Why, after we piled that McDuff into the cab, he dusted his white gloves off, genteel-like, slipped the monocle he wears into his eye and grabbed another cab and shoved. Mm. He's a phony. His real name is Bert Dukes, and Milady is Gert. And on her, it shows. What do you mean, shows? That the second she gets behind her door, uh, they got suite 312, she climbs out of her accent like it was a tight girdle. Uh. Especially when she and that niece of hers go at it. Uh, uh, yes, sir, the famous Merrimack cabins are on Route 66 near St. Louis. Oh, good evening, Mr. Fisher. Good evening, Tom. Okay, where were we? The niece, the niece. Oh, yeah, quite a doll. Her name's Merle Brimmer. Acts as a business manager, so she must also have brains. Now tell me, who's Cornelius? Cornelius? Yeah. <laughs> What's breaking you up? Who is he? Nobody but the star of the act. The Lord and the Lady do a farce thing, uh, a takeoff on English drawing room stuff, and Cornelius plays the butler. Plays it in a derby and a boiled shirt, no less. Well, why the giggles? You've seen a derby and boiled shirt before? Yeah, yeah, sure I have. But on Cornelius, it looks different. You see, mister, he's a chimpanzee. <laughs> Yeah, Cornelius definitely added screwball. But I also knew that prospective client Macduff had been sapped and piled into a cab for good riddance, which could add to less than funny. So I decided I'd look around a little longer, especially in the vicinity of Milady's chamber, number 312. When I stepped out of the elevator on the third floor, an owl-faced waiter was just piloting a dinner cart loaded down with dirty dishes out of the room. And when the cart joggled down to the corridor rug, it nearly upset a coffee pot which left the waiter's mind on the juxtaposition of cot and pot and not the door, if he'd left open inches. I waited till he passed me. Then I moved up to where I could both see and hear Lady Ashley Duke and her niece Merle exploding at each other through an after-dinner conversation. The former was built like an upended blimp with as much charm as a mooring mast. The latter was blonde and female, spy beautiful. And also, she was nonchalantly slipping a shiny 32 automatic from desk drawer to purse. Oh, now, wait a minute, Gert. Before you snap a stay, you listen to me. Why? So you can explain once more how poor Uncle Bird's idiotic mistakes are just bad luck. Ten thousand bucks worth of bad luck. Nuts. Bird don't know anything about investments. He shouldn't be allowed to touch a red cent. And my pretty, from here on out, that's exactly the way it's going to be. Believe me. Oh, cut it, Gert, and quit blaming Uncle Bert and me. Are you kidding? Why shouldn't I blame the two of you? He's a jerk, and you... 
I never wanted you with us in the first place. My niece. <laughs> oh, shut up. And remember, dear aunt, your husband likes me around. I'm good for his morale, he says. He'll never let you fire me. So don't waste your breath. Auntie, get out of here. Go on, get down to the freight house and keep your eyes open. We don't want to lose Cornelius. Don't worry, darling. Guard duty's an old specialty of mine. Yes, who is it? Name's Marlowe. I'd like to see Lord Ashley Duke. Oh, well, I... Oh, well... Uh, yes. <laughs> He's not in, but what did you want to see him about? Oh, uh, business. Uh, can you help me? Perhaps. You see, I'm his uh, business... She used to be his business manager. She was just leaving, weren't you, Merle Darling? Yes, Merle Darling was. Mr. Marlowe, Lady Ashley Duke. Goodbye, Auntie. Unhappy, huh? Oh, rather. Uh, now, sir, to save each of us time, let me be blunt. Lord Ashley Duke is no longer interested in making any investments whatsoever, nor will he be interested at a future date. Is that clear, sir? Yes, like well water, Lady Ashley Duke, and if I were looking for an investor, I'd keep it in mind. But you see, I'm a private detective working for Wesley McDuff. A paper? A lousy paper pushing his way uh, in here. Why are you... Easy, easy, Gertie. Let go. Get your filthy hands off me. Sure. Just as soon as you get back into neutral. I also want to save us time, and I want to save Cornelius, too. How do we talk or wrestle? Which? Oh, all right. Seven weeks ago, Lord Ashley Duke and I bought Cornelius from that crazy monkey razor out in Burbank. We paid McDuff $30,000 for a run-down 17-year-old chimpanzee. Well, then why do you want to kill him? McDuff thinks you're going to. Yeah, McDuff's crazy. Just because we change our minds and instead of staying here in L.A., decide to go on the road. McDuff thinks Cornelius will catch cold and die. So he wants him back. Yeah, but you'll get your money back. Yeah. But what about the seven weeks of work just to teach him to drop a glass? Not only that, he's a wonderful imitator. I can see your point. Besides, a deal's a deal. And we're taking the risk of Cornelius's death, not the loon who runs that Burbank animal farm. Why, that Scotchman thinks every animal in the joint's related to him. <laughs> It's an old idea, honey. But look, Lady Ash... At what? We've had our talk, people. Now get out. Go on. Go on. Get out before I forget I'm uh, a lady. Over here, Tompkins. What is it? A telephone call, sir. Booth four this way, please. Make out all right up there? Jim Dandy. Good. Now, uh, if you feel I was underpaid, I you, feel we uh... came out even, Buster. Besides, I'm running low on farthings. Unless, uh... Yes? You know where the freight house Cornelius calls home is located. Uh-uh. Blank. Okay. So long, Tompkins. Hello? Mr. Morrow? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You all right, McDuff? Hey, it takes more than a foul blue in the dark to stop me, man. And it's just what Lord Ashley Duke is going to discover in many minutes. What do you mean? That I've run out of patience. I ain't going to act, not talk. I'm about to take Cornelius back with my own hands, and I want you to help oh, me. Oh, now, wait a now, minute. Look, man, I'm in a drugstore at Pershing Square, close by the freight house where Cornelius is caged for shipment. I want you to wait, meet you me. You can't steal him, McDuff. Ah, I, I can. Steal him and disguise the animal so they'll ne'er be able to claim him again. So they won't be able to kill him. McDuff, I can't go along with that. Then I chose the wrong man. Oh. There's precious little time left, Mr. Marlowe. Tomorrow they leave Los Angeles. Now, will you help me? No. Beside McDuff, you'll never get away with it. There's a girl, Ashley Duke's niece, who's got a gun, and I... McDuff. McDuff! All the 
away from the phone booth, through the lobby, into my car outside, I kept telling myself three things. One, I wasn't working for McDuff. Two, McDuff was about to commit a crime. And three, I couldn't worry about the gun in Merle Brimmer's purse. It was all none of my business. So when I was in behind the wheel of my car, I pointed it toward my apartment on Franklin, lit a cigarette, and forgot about the whole thing. But a block later, I threw the cigarette out, turned, and headed for Pershing Square. Scots with animal farms in Burbank obviously weren't the only crazy people in Los Angeles. After arriving at Pershing Square, I was 30 minutes piling up wisecracks, frozen stairs, and assorted giggles before I hit pay dirt. A bottle boy with a great memory. Yeah, sure, I know the place. Only spot around, it'll ship live animals along with <clears throat> the rest of the stuff that they handle. Anything from an eel to an elephant. How about pink ones? They got those, too. That's what I thought. Yeah, I worked there once during, <clears throat> during the Christmas rush. Made the price of a fifth in one day. Now, I look, look, you'll do it again right now if you can tell me one thing. The address, what is it? Uh, it's, uh, yeah. 44... Come on, come on. 42... Stick with it. Uh... 4th yeah. Street. Hey, boy. <laughs> Here's five. Crawl back in the bottle. I'll see you. The neighborhood was half residential, half industrial, and all run down. Including the freight house, which was two windowless stories of dirty red brick hovering over a loading ramp on a deserted, shadowy street. I started slowly toward it, when suddenly a side door flew open and an excited old man with flashlight and giant key ring that spelled Night Watchman leaped out of the building, arms and legs going like twin beaters on a mix master. Hey, hey, Pop, hold it, is it the chimp? Yes, and he's raising the roof in there. Yeah? If I shoot him, I... I'll be fired. He's worth a fortune. Yeah, I know all about it. Come on, I'll give you a hand. Oh, okay, good. Well, let's go. Where is he? Upstairs. Hanging in one window at the back. I just turned the lights on and there he was. Oh. When he seen me, he grabbed a stick from the floor and started beating things with oh, it. Oh, fine. And then he broke the window and began to swing on the block and tackle. It runs outside from the roof to the ground. Look, there he is. Yeah, still beating. Hey, Doc, Poppy's going to fling it. There he goes, down the roof. And away. Well... All right, Pop, we better call the Look, cops. Over there, near his empty cage. It's a girl. Blood all over her head. Holy smoke. Merle Brimmer. She did? Yeah. Beat to death with a stick the chimp just threw at us. Then, then you think the monkey did it? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. He's a great imitator, Pop. It could have been somebody else. Not the monkey? Then who? Who else? A monkey's uncle. A Scotchman named Macduff. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, Groucho Mar Marx will make another of his famed personal appearances on most of the same CBS stations this Wednesday night. Groucho Marx, whose many activities include emceeing You Bet Your Life, one of the craziest quiz shows on the air. You're cordially invited to hear Groucho Marx every Wednesday on CBS. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Monkey's Uncle.
walked around the body of the girl on the freight house floor. I took a close look at the cage lock. There was no doubt that it had been forced from the outside. The watchman staring down at the body was shaking like a motorcycle with square wheels. So I took him by the arm and walked him down the stairs and outside for some air. It's, it's terrible. I don't know what to do. Nothing like this ever happened here before, and the boss never told me what I'm supposed to do in a case like this. Well, it's easy. Just call the police. The police? Yeah. Also the SPCA and Frank Buck. Chances are we'll need them all before the night's over. Okay, mister. Thanks, I should... Hey, who's that getting out of that cab? From the top hat cape and spats, I'd say it was one Lord Ashley Duke, the legal owner of the chimp. What are you two blighters staring at him? Out of my way. Uh, just a moment, just a moment before you go inside. I want to talk to you, Lord Ashley Duke. Uh, you know my name, do you? Well, now, my Joe, that's interesting. I don't know you, sir. I'll survive. Why'd you come down here tonight? Because I heard that my niece was here protecting my property. And that's no suitable task for a girl. Not capable to do that sort of thing, you know. It's a man's job, you know. I had a beastly time finding the place, too. You haven't been here before, huh? Oh, yes, yes, a couple of days ago. But that, that, that was in broad daylight. Uh, stand aside, One sir. thing more. Hmm? Why did you slug Wesley McDuff tonight and dump him in a cab? Just who are you, anyway? Private detective Philip Marlowe's the name. Hmm. Well, sounds British enough. About as British as you are. Hmm? Oh, yeah. And you, I presume, are the watchman. Yes, sir. That's me, your highness. What about Macduff, your highness? There's no choice. The blighter wanted to welch on the transaction we've made. I refused and he threatened me. So I bopped him. And then <laughs> made out he was intoxicated, you know. Packed him off in a cabin. Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah. <clears throat> Nevertheless, when a man sells me a monkey, by George, that monkey is mine. And thought that treatment might bring Macduff to his bloody senses. Well, it didn't. It made him tougher. And what's more, the chimpanzee is gone. And, and Cornelius is gone. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Come on, Pop. Uh, okay. where she was when we found her. And that crazy monkey was in here just jumping up and down like he was throwing a fit. It was McDuff. McDuff, that's who it was. That madman. Hurry, mackerel. What was that? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. You stay here. The scream had come from the architectural blunder next door. It was one of those big gingerbread houses left over from the 1800s, and I got there just in time to meet the witch. The scaly front portal was jerked open in front of me, and there she stood. Like a pool cue in high panic, topped by a head of brittle orange hair, half done up tight in curlers, the other half streaming over her face. She clutched frantically at the stained kimono with one hand and me with the other. Take it easy. Hold it, will you? What's going on? Oh, oh, that face, that awful face. What face? The ugliest thing I ever seen. Oh, protect me. It's a fear. All right, take it easy. Will you calm down and tell me what happened? I was upstairs in my room taking my yeah. hair down. When I happened to look over at the window, and there was that face shoved right up against the glass. Oh, I swear I never seen nothing like that since before I took the cure, mister. All right, now listen, and I... hair all over it, red eyes and big grinning mouth. What was like one of them giant gorillas they got in the movie. That's Cornelius, all right. Where's the room? Oh, up there at the head of them stairs. Oh. Hey, you ain't going up there and leave me all alone, are you? Well, then come along. Corny's a trained chimp. He won't hurt you. Oh, no, not me, brother. I didn't. Where? Where? Tell me, is that a passage out there between the houses? Oh, no, no, it's a kind of an airship, only it's closed up at the back. Oh, you mean he can't get through to the alley? Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's no way out of there except 
street. All right, come on, let's get outside. We got him cornered. Oh, you got him cornered, baby, mister, not me. I don't want nothing more to do with that ugly puss. The air shaft was a scant 18 inches wide and as dark and cluttered as the inside of a goat pen with odors to match. I worked my way back as far as the bashful light from the street reached. Oh, be careful in there, mister. And I stopped and listened. But Cornelius was a genius. There wasn't a sound. And I couldn't see my hand in front of my face to say nothing of a black-haired chimpanzee who was no doubt getting a big kick out of the entire procedure. I decided to try psychology on him. So I called in what I hoped was a firm but friendly voice, and it got me no place. I groped my way along the wall of the drain pipe and called again. This time shorter on the friendly and longer on the firm, which was a mistake. The drain pipe should have given me a hint, but it didn't. What's the matter? He's gone. Hold on, who? who? Who's gone? That gorilla. Oh. It was up on the drain pipe. Oh. It hit you on the head with something that oh. ran right past me and oh. got away in a taxi. Oh, come on, let's get out oh, of here. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, baby. I I could have sworn you said the, the monkey took a taxi. Yeah, you did. I watched the whole oh, thing. Oh, my. As soon as it got out in the street, a man in a checkered tan with a crooked stick in his hand came out from between them buildings over there and called it. Uh. They ran up to a taxi. The driver jumped out and they drove away. I seen him. The driver jumped out and they drove away. Yeah. I don't think you took the cure soon enough. Well, I seen something else, too. Huh? A fat breed in a high hat and spats came charging out of the freight house yeah. there, saw the cab leaving, got in a green coupe that green was parked coupe. in front and took off. Holy after. smoke, that's my car. Yeah, oh, it's gone. How do you like that? Yeah. Now maybe you'll believe me, huh? Every screwy word, sweetheart. Now, look, you didn't happen to see... Driver there. Did anybody see what happened? I gotta have a witness. My taxi was hijacked off of me by two crazy guys. One of them looked like an ape, exactly like an ape. Move over, bud. We're on the same raft. My car's gone, too. Tell me what happened, will you? Start at the top. Okay. Tonight I bring this big shot in a high hat down here to the freight house. He hops out, tells me to wait, see? Yeah. So I drive down the block and turn around. I, I, I'm parked right over there, trying to grab a quick 40 winks. When up comes this loon. A Scotchman? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. He throws me a fast address and starts getting in, see? I politely tell him the flag is down, but he keeps coming. You see, it's just yeah, like Yeah, yeah, I, I know it's just like it. Now, look, did you ever see this Scotchman before? No, never. I figure maybe he's got a snoot full of happy days, nothing more. Uh -huh. So I'm reaching over to block him when a pair of hands that feels like a doormat with muscles mm. grabs me around the neck. I twist around and look, and what do I see? Cornelius. Him I don't know, but an ape man is crawling in my wind. So help me, I'm rubbing noses with a missing link. Yeah, I know. Then what happened? Mac, I jump out of the taxi, and before I know it, the old geezer gives me a claw with his stick, piles in, the next thing, my taxi's gone just like that. You gotta believe me, somebody's gotta back me up. <laughs> if I try this on the cops, they'll have me in a padded cell in no time. Well, don't worry about it, fella. Just reach hard for that address the Scotchman gave you. Can you remember it? Oh, sure. Uh, let me see, it was the, uh, the, uh, the Rushmore. Rushmore. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a down-at-the-heels motel out on Vernon. Yeah. Somewhere around uh, Beverly Boulevard. Ed Nathan's... Oh, you stepped on something here on the sidewalk. Oh, you sure did, cutie. Smashed it, too. Yeah, it looks like somebody's watch crystal. Sure, ladies' watch crystal. Oh, nice one. See, it had this hunk of black ribbon with it. Ladies' what? Hey, wait a minute. Let me see that. Sure, here. It's velvet, see? Yeah, yeah, it sure is. That doesn't fit. Not here. No one's been here but the three of us and the chimp. 
So long, kids. Hey, hey, wait. Where are you I'm going to talk to a liar about a murder. I'll see you later at headquarters, I hope. But what about my time? Talk to the night watchman in the freight house. You'll be good for each other. I was two blocks on foot finding another taxi in 15 minutes getting from there out to the motel, worrying all the way because I'd left my gun under the front seat of my car. Business was slow at the Rushmore. The only cabin that showed a light was the last in the rear next to the alley. I was sure of what I'd find inside, in spite of the fact that neither the stolen cab nor my coupe was any place in sight. When I heard the voices, I decided to bluff it. I went up to the front door and pressed my ear against the flimsy panel. Anyway, a bargain's a bargain, but Duff, you'd have done better to stick by it. I'd have stuck by it if ye had your scurvy crook. Ah, don't reach for your chain. It's a little late for that. You're in a real jam now. I'm going to see you blamed for my niece's murder. But I didn't kill her. I pushed her down. I. Yeah. She caught me unlucky Cornelius Cage and tried to stop me. But I didn't kill her. You did that. Yes, yes, but who knows that? Except you and the monk there. And he can't talk. And you won't believe me. Ah, you're daft, man. Why did you do it? Because I had to. Because Merle was bleeding me to death. Every cent I could lay my hands on. I had to buy her silence. I had to pretend to lose thousands in poor investments. Well... Merle got what was coming to her, and you gave me that chance. I found her on the floor where you left her and simply finished the job. Then you ran off and came back in that taxi 15 minutes later, the very spirit of innocence. I saw you. Very well, Lord Ashley Duke. You've got me as a thief, too, so get on with it. Get on with your filthy evil plan. I'm ready. Don't be in a hurry, McDuff. Stay where you are, Ashley. Don't bother turning around. Just drop the gun. Oh, I knew you'd not let me down, laddie. I knew it. Oh, what's this, old boy? It's rather an untimely incident. Skip the accent, Birch. You won't need it where you're going. Drop that gun, I said. Before you move, shoot me with that pipe in your pocket. Marlowe, I've got your gun here in my hand, and you know it. Want a bet? Well, with the light out... Yes, Ashley! Oh! 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 It's, it's a very strange thing, lad. He hit you but once, huh? but there are two lumps on your skull. Do you can this condition? Never mind, skip it. I don't want to talk about it. Oh! Where's Ashley? Trust up there in the corner. He should be coming around soon. You see, Cornelius, as you've no doubt learned, is a great imitator. When he saw Ashley bat you on the head with a gun, yeah. he grabbed McCain, leaped up on the dresser there, and batted Ashley on the head. Oh, no, no. Not with this headache. Aye. Don't tell me I'm indebted to that. Just when I was learning to hate him. Aye. We both are. For our lives. Yeah. But tell me, what does a black velvet ribbon and a, a watch crystal mean? He mumbled that over and over while we, uh, you were out. Oh. Well, that's how I knew Ashley was a liar and a killer. See, the cab driver stepped on a round piece of glass that looked like a watch crystal with a ribbon attached. Uh-huh. Happened on the sidewalk in front of an air shaft. Actually, the... Oh, actually, the glass was a monocle. Oh, dropped by <sighs> Lord Ashley Duke. No. Ashley'd never been at that spot. No? But if Cornelius had, and if Cornelius dropped the monocle, it indicated that... Lord Ashley Duke had been someplace with Cornelius early at night, you see? Ah. That could only be the freight house. Yet Ashley claimed he hadn't been there for two days. Oh, I see. Oh, you do. Oh, my head. How about you, Cornelius? <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the best answers I've had tonight.
It didn't take long at police headquarters. Maybe an hour altogether. A killer was locked up for trial, and the key witness ate three erasers, spilled a quart of ink, and broke a window before the homicide boys finally gave up. I watched the phony lord Ashley Duke walk down the corridor to his cell. Any connection he had with man was just the category. Then I watched Macduff and company leave, too. A couple of regular guys. A monkey and a monkey's uncle. A genuine old Scott who loved life and his shuffling friend whose only limitation was his inability to speak. But he communicated all right in the only language that means anything. Love of one creature for another. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. As a special note of interest, Philip Marlowe fans, you'll be glad to know that radio and television Life magazine has this week named Gerald Moore as the best male actor in radio. Featured in our cast were Mary Lansing, John Daner, Tudor Owen, Sam Edwards, Michael Ann Barrett, Harry Bartell, and Junius Matthews. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. We've just heard The Monkey's Uncle, a 1950 episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Thank you, dear friends. This concludes today's show. On behalf of Around the World's staff of researchers, recording engineers, interns, and Victrola technicians, this is Cracklin' Jane. Thank you, and see you next week. Joan Loudon, a.k.a. The Bass Lady, inviting you to join me every Wednesday from 3 to 4.30 p.m. for The Bass Lady Presents, with a different weekly theme from jazz to Celtic, from Newgrass to New Orleans, it's always a mix of great music. That's every Wednesday from 3 to 4.30, with a repeat airing on Saturdays from 4 to 5.30 p.m., right here on 93.3 FM, W-S-H-D-L-P, Eastport, Maine. I'm all about that bass. Hey, have I got a radio show for you. Old Coasting comes at you twice a week. Thursday at 8, Sunday at 4. Right here on W-S-H-D-L-P in Eastport, Maine, 93.3 FM. On Bold Coasting, we don't just play the music. Uh, we like to talk about it a little bit, too. It's music and commentary. It's a radio show with liner notes. 
you kids can ask your parents what that means. Every Saturday night at 7 and again on Tuesdays at 8 for Philly Joe Remarkable's Mad Pad right here on WSHDLP Eastport, Maine, 93.3 on your FM dial. Man, take this crazy pad. Man, it's a mad pad. Listening to WSHDLP Eastport, broadcasting from the hallowed hallways of Shed High School. Tune in Mondays 4 to 6 p.m. for Around the World with your host, Cracklin Jane, featuring historical 78 RPM recordings from around the world, plus radio dramas from the golden age of radio. If you miss the show, don't despair. There's a repeat broadcast on Fridays, 6 to 8 p.m., and if you miss that, just go to www.cracklinjane.com and download or stream the show at your leisure. Come on by Sam's Caffeine Cafe every Tuesday and Thursday morning from 8 until 10 a.m. I'm Sam, the proprietor. I keep all the tables clean. There are no sesame seeds on the floor, no schmutz from the night before, just good music. The first hour, a little bit softer, some Americana, folk, blues, a little bit of jazz, but by 9 o'clock, we are amped up on caffeine. We're playing up-tempo music all hour long. It's a grab bag. It's a fun place to hang out, and we would love to have you. We would. Please come by. 93.3 WSHDLP Eastport. 